Hello and welcome to the Armin Show podcast hosted by me, Armin Shervanian, with scientists, professors, learning, knowledge, communication, moving forward. On this episode, we have the author of a book, The Social Instinct, How Cooperation Shaped the World, Professor Nicola Rehani. She is a British psychologist, professor of evolution and behavior at University College London, who I believe... John Rhodes also went to as well, which is great and includes zoology. Uh, Her research considers the evolution of cooperation in nature. She was elected fellow of the Royal Society of Biology in 2019 and received a Philip Leverhulme Prize for Psychology in 2018, which is awarded to those who are pushing forward in a field. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Glad to have you on the show. Now, before we get into the book, I like to check how someone got to where they are. What steps took you from earlier to being a professor currently at that college? Sure. So um, I was always interested in science from a young age. In fact, as a kid, I was kind of adamant for a long time that I was going to be a vet. Um, As it happened, I ended up going to university and not studying veterinary science, but studying natural science. And I majored in zoology. Um, And I was very much focused on the evolution of behavior while I was at university. So that was something that that I did at that point. Uh, And after I finished my degree, I actually took a field assistant position with a a professor called Mandy Ridley, who was at that point doing her own PhD on an obscure species of bird that I'd never heard of called a pied babbler that lived in the Kalahari Desert. So I applied for for this role to go and help out collecting data on these birds. I thought, okay, Kalahari Desert sounds good and uh, it'll be interesting to go there if nothing else and basically that sort of set in motion then um, what followed which was that I also ended up doing my PhD on that very same species of bird that lived in the Kalahari Desert uh, and, and eventually started to then broaden out my research interests to include not just these kind of family living species like the babblers which we can talk more about if you're interested in Um, but also to include species where um, cooperation and helpful behaviour occurs between individuals that don't know each other and are not related to each other. And of course, the species for whom that's most sort of um, obvious is humans. And so then my research became, in time, actually a lot more focused on understanding social behaviour in humans. So it's a pretty winding path around the globe and different study organisms and different ways of doing things. But the one thing that that sort of links together all the research that I've done, whether it's on humans or non-humans, is this interest in how social behavior evolves. Mm-hmm. I noticed the trend of looking at cooperation and how that is also enforced or how people are reminded of it on their own, maybe from a selfish standpoint. So it's nice to look at. Now, the social instinct is your upcoming book. And what led you to be writing this specifically? So um, I guess I was at a point where I thought, that there was enough interesting stuff out there on cooperation in nature and that I felt that it would be um, of interest to a general audience and, and that, that it would be interesting to, to kind of bring this, this new science of cooperation in a digestible format to people who aren't just in the science, you know, in the academy or the working in science and just, you know, general, any person could learn about it. So the book is basically about cooperation. Um, And in a general sense, it's about how cooperation made the world we live in. So you can think of cooperation as being the thing that created every living being on the planet. So every living thing is made of genes cooperating in genomes that cooperate inside cells. 
uh, and work together to make this kind of entity that we think of as an individual tree or bird or, or person. Um, but I'm also interested in thinking about how cooperation not only made the world in a way, but how it shaped it and how what it means to be a social species, a species like humans that lives in groups that are defined by cooperation uh, and, and how that shaped our evolutionary trajectory and how that made us who we are today and how we can learn more about what it means to be a social species through comparison with other social species that live on the planet. And so it's very much a book about, it's a book about humans in some ways, but it's a book about humans as just another animal that lives on earth and, and, and viewing ourselves very much as uh, a species that's just one of many species that lives a social life. I like that perspective. I noticed it in the book. It is good because it also helps see us from a third party perspective, as opposed to everything we do is the way when we see other organisms, we're like, oh, we got that from that one. We got that element from that one. And we we play some of the same games that organisms play in a way. I like that the book is broken up. It's sort of layered. And I see that as a general theme as well, which I'll come back to. But it goes from evolution of individuals to evolution of families, bigger picture, then a larger picture beyond the family, and then uh, as far as societal. And then I noticed one thing I couldn't help but remember is that you described that one thing at one level may be perceived as something different at another level, like um, competition at one level could be cooperation at a different level. Can you speak on this concept of different layers? Sure. Um, so I think at the outset, it's useful to just note that cooperation is is basically um, a process or, or a way in which entities, whether they are genes, cells, individuals, improve their position in the world. And so at its heart, cooperation functions in an evolutionary sense as a form of competition. Um, and one way that one sort of way to think about this or one example where this might be kind of help, sort of intuitive in a way to think about is um, if we think about what it what cancer is. So cancer is an illness that will afflict. Um, I think it's either one in two or one of or one in three of us at some point during our lives, and we often view this as um, as a disease where our body is kind of going, you know, fighting against itself in some way and, and definitely not something which we would ever think of as being an example of cooperation. But in some ways, what we now know about um, cancer cells and tumors in particular is that they're often not comprised of just one cell type, but that instead um, often the most aggressive and most difficult to treat kinds of cancer are formed of cells that have many different properties and that form what you might call cooperative communities inside your body that work together to increase uh, their to increase their joint success. But of course, that success exacts a very heavy toll upon the host organism or you know the individual that is suffering with the cancer. And so I think that perspective in some ways can be helpful for understanding what it means to say that cooperation might often have victims. Um, and, and another example to go away from this kind of um, inside our bodies, but one where we see similar things happening in a human society where you can have individuals cooperating, but where that cooperation might produce costs to other individuals. One story that I read about recently that I really liked um, concerned Uber drivers or Lyft drivers picking up um, passengers at, um, at one of the, uh, an American airport. I can't remember which airport now, but basically, uh, the so the story went in this article that where it was reported. Um, 
the drivers would basically work together when they arrived at the airport to switch off the app that indicates that they were waiting for the passengers. And in doing so, when the planes landed, then um, the number of passengers seeking a ride relative to the number of drivers available generated surge pricing because it, there's an apparent shortage of drivers at the airport. And of course, at some point when the surge pricing hits the desired level, then uh, the ringleader of these of the taxi drivers tells everyone they can switch their app back on again. And then they take these passengers who pay slightly more to be journeyed home to their destination. And so that again is another example. And there are many examples that, that once you start thinking in this way, you start seeing that there are many cases of where something that looks like cooperation, if you look at it through one lens, actually can also be interpreted as a form of competition, or you can see that there are victims of that cooperation when you look at it through a different lens. And so I think that's one theme that, like you said, is really important that runs through the book, which is that cooperation is entirely consistent with a Darwinian perspective on evolution. And it is a way in which organisms improve their position in the world. Uh, and a corollary of that is that cooperation often has victims. There's a competitive element to it, somewhat of the selfish gene. Long live that concept. One thing that came to mind right there is a lot of, I noticed a lot of game theory type of components described. It's nice to see also with the animals that they are following some of the same guidelines that we are, whereas if we saw them from a distance and didn't uh, pay attention to what they were doing, then we wouldn't see patterns of what they do that we do the same thing. So they're actually doing the same thought processes in some way. What are some elements? Well, I don't know if I'd say they were doing the same. I think, sorry, just to jump in, but I think one thing I would be pretty careful about not implying is oh. that this that there's the same, the same cognition right. underpins the same right. behavioral outcome. And I think that is another sort of, in a way, maybe a theme that comes out or one thing that I'm kind of quite keen to emphasize is that you can get to the same destination behaviorally by really different cognitive journeys. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I kind of jumped there. Not necessarily <laughs> thought process, but they are acting in the same way at the end result. Um, and I was wondering, what are some concepts from game theory that most apply to some elements of your research that come to mind? So I think like the classical sort of paradigms that, that we leverage from game theory kind of all the time are the prisoner's dilemma and the multiplayer equivalent of that, which is the public goods game. And so what both those um, scenarios have in common is that there's a mutual, everyone does best if everyone cooperates, but there's always an individual temptation to defect or cheat or free ride, whatever you want to call it, on the investments of your co-players in the game, because by doing that, you can get a personally higher payoff than if you cooperated. And often these games are called social dilemmas. And the reason that for that is that they're so they're social because obviously the interactions involve more than one player so your payoffs are determined not only by what you do but by what your co-players do in the task and they're dilemmas because individual and collective interests are not always aligned and the the dilemma of the situation is that you could in principle achieve a higher mutual payoff if you could both or all agree to cooperate but because there is this temptation to cheat, what we actually expect to happen um, theoretically is that individuals will all cheat. And then you end up in a, in a worse paying uh, cell or outcome of this scenario where you end up with lower payoffs than you could have achieved if you could have only found a way to, to agree to cooperate. The concept of cheating makes me Think of the fish, one type of fish, the cleaner fish, which I didn't know existed until your content cleans other fish, but 
they are they work together in this quality and at the same time there can potentially be cheater fish also that will pretend to be them and uh, instead of cleaning maybe take advantage of the fish i read somewhere well, can you tell us about the relationship between cleaner fish and the fish that they clean and how this is a interaction where they work together in some way Sure. So, yeah, this is a system that I was um, fortunate to work on. I, I started working on this system in 2010 with my colleague, Redwan Bashari. Um, and it's actually a really cool system. So basically, the cleaner fish is a small fish that if you've ever been lucky enough to go diving anywhere in the Indo-Pacific, you probably have seen one because they're quite common. Um, and the cleaner fish basically holds um, small territories, which we call cleaning stations, where they, they, they offer a service to all the other fish, who we call the clients, that live on the reef. And you can think of this as being a bit like the cleaner fish are like the hairdressers of the coral reef. So they have their little spot that they hang out at and then everyone else comes to visit when it's time to get cleaned. So the service that cleaner fish offer to clients is the removal of ectoparasites and other stuff that the clients don't want on the surface of their skin. And the service is important for the clients. It um, protects their health and there are experiments which show that if you remove the cleaning the cleaner fish from certain parts of the reef, that the client's health really does suffer. So it, it appears to be quite an important mutualism between these um, two, two sets of species. But one of the things that's really interesting about this system is that there's also quite a pr pronounced conflict of interest between cleaner fish and their clients because what the cleaner fish would prefer to eat is the mucus and scales, the living tissues of the client, rather than the ectoparasites and the other kind of junk that the client would like them to eat. And so the system um, is actually a really neat sort of case study for being able to ask how cooperation is maintained in a system where one party is tempted to cheat um, and where we know that we can't explain cooperation through, for example, kin selection, which is where benefits are, are generated via uh, benefits that accrue to your relatives. In this system, we know that it, the cooperation that we see can't be predicated on kin selection because clean efficient clients are not only unrelated to each other, they're a completely different species. So there's definitely no sense in which we can explain this through indirect benefits to relatives. And instead, we have to ask, how do clients manage to make the cleaner fish feed against its preference? So how do the clients force the cleaner fish in a way to eat the ectoparasites and not cheat by eating mucus and scales. And how do they do this? You know, how do they achieve this seemingly quite sophisticated kind of cooperation? It's not that dissimilar to the kinds of things in a way that humans do, where two strangers come together and, you know, agree, they agree that something, some service will be provided and that it will be paid for. And it, we do this by with, you know, laws and rules and, and things like this, but cleaner fish just somehow managed to solve this problem you know, without being able to talk to each other, without being able to agree on what the desired outcome is or, or you know, to have laws or, or institutions that uh, enforce what happens. And so quite a bit of the research that Red One has done and also that um, more recently that I've been involved with has been exploring how cooperation can be maintained in the system. And it turns out actually that there are two really important things that go, that happen in that mutualism to sustain cooperation. Uh, one of them is punishment, um, and the other one is a a form of reputation-based partner choice. So, if you like, I can explain a bit more about those two things. That would be great. Punishment, I know of, is a category of yours of expertise, and. Reputation management is something that also makes me think of 
people and what they do. But yes, uh, those would be nice to elaborate upon. Yeah, sure. So um, in the cleaner fish system, um, when a cleaner fish bites a client, when it eats mucus or scales, you can often observe that if you're if you're diving and you're doing observations underwater, or if you have the cleaner fish in your aquaria in the lab, you can see when a client has been bitten because they visibly jolt and often they might swim away. Um, what some clients do when a cleaner fish bites them, perhaps unsurprisingly, is that they punish the cleaner fish. So uh, a fish punishment basically takes the form of, of the client fish aggressively chasing the cleaner fish around. Uh, and it seems to have the desired effect in the sense that a cleaner fish that is punished by a client is more cooperative in the next interaction with that client, meaning basically that they're more likely to feed on ectoparasites and less likely to bite the client again. So punishment is one major tool that clients have up their sleeves to enforce cooperation. Um, and another tool, perhaps more surprisingly, is this kind of reputation-based um, partner choice. So what, what you see in the system is that some clients have a very large home range, um, and that means that within their home range, they actually have access to maybe three, four different cleaning stations. And so in a way, you can think of that as being a bit like what happens if you're going to go out for dinner at a restaurant and you either go to a place where there's only one, you know, it's a small village, there's only one restaurant in the whole village versus you go out in the middle of a city and there's just like a whole street full of restaurants. So in the place where you have choice, where you can, you know, where there's, a, where there's an abundance of alternative or what we call outside options, um, all the service providers kind of have to up their game if they want to attract customers, because it's very easy for customers to just make a different choice if they don't think what's on offer is looks very appealing. And the same thing happens in the cleaner fish client situation. So basically for the clients that have a lot of choice because they, they have a large home range and they that includes several cleaning stations, they just don't put up with a bad service by cleaners. If they arrive at the cleaning station, they expect to be serviced immediately. They don't want to wait to have their cleaning service. Uh, if the cleaner fish cheats them, they're less likely to come back again in future. So clients exert this kind of partner choice on cleaner fish. And even more amazingly, um, work which was done by um, a PhD student in this system called Anna Pinto showed that not only do the clients act in this kind of prima donna way and they kind of only go somewhere where it looks like the service will be good but the cleaner fish are also seemingly aware of when they're being watched by one of these fussy clients the ones that the ones that basically won't accept a bad service and when they're watched by the fussy clients they tend to be behave in a much nicer way to the client that they're currently interacting with because what um, will happen if they don't, if the current client jolts and then swims away, which is a sign that the cleaner fish has cheated, then the fussy client who's next in line for getting serviced will also probably swim away as well. And so the cleaner fish seem to show this kind of rudimentary concern for reputation and they behave in a more cooperative way when they're observed by an audience that pays attention to that. And of course, that is very reminiscent of our own behavior. I mean, sensitivity to reputation is a huge driver of cooperative behavior in humans. And it's just really astounding in some ways that we see this similar thing going on in this underwater mutualism. It's true. It's like a free market system in relation to social dynamics, similar to what we do. I, can, I, I do so many analogs of everything to humans because I'm very people-oriented and it's nice to... It's funny because the fish, they don't have, you know, written material about their dynamics, but they're doing some of the same that we are doing socially to maintain. And if they don't, then they lose the high-end uh, clients, if you will. It's a classic market in a way. But you wouldn't know unless you looked at 
Oh, that's one thing also I, I very much liked in the book. You cannot understand something in total if looking at it for just a bit. Like you had mentioned, if you just watch someone at their computer for a few hours and you thought that's what humans do, you wouldn't know all their details. I've thought about this before, about how if you want to see someone, it would be nice to see someone for 24 hours or 48 hours. Then you can get the full spectrum versus what's mostly posted on the internet is like little little bits that doesn't tell us much about the total person. I found that to be very informative. Now, one other theme I saw in the book is a, there's a give and take kind of, whereas it's not one is better or that is better. It's um, kind of this versus this is what creates a, a boundary point that is our stable point in our society. So one example of a, back and forth was grandmothers and younger females as far as like taking care of potential offspring and their utility in relation to menopause. Can you speak about this uh, battle between older females and younger? Sure. So um, humans are humans are kind of weird as far as great apes go into in a few ways um one of which is that we live in family groups that's quite unusual um we're, we're the only great ape that lives in these extended family groups where children can expect to know and interact with not only their mother but various other members of their family uh, and we're also different in that we have women or females and, and human females undergo a distinct physiological transition at around the age of 50, where, whereby they become essentially sterile helper morphs, if you want to use the cooperative breeding terminology, uh, and where they undergo menopause, which is how we would refer to it in normal everyday language. Um, and the, and this we don't see this in other great ape species. So um, the norm in most of the great ape societies is that grandmothers don't really have anything to do with their grandchildren, so to speak. Um, the youngsters are raised primarily by their mothers and older females and younger females will um, co-breed alongside one another. So um, a mother and one, one female might be raising her offspring at the same time as her mother's raising offspring. Um, and there's just, there's no evidence of any kind of post-reproductive lifespan where a female stops breeding sometime before she dies. So obviously the question for, is why? Why do humans have this distinct physiological switch point where we go from being, uh, you know, fully paid up members of the breeding uh, class of the society. And instead we kind of seemingly relegate ourselves to this evolutionary dead end where we're no longer reproductive. Um, and why don't we see it in, in many other species? Um, and so it turns out that to understand the evolution of menopause, we have to sort of go back into human prehistory and make some uh, inferences based on best guesses about how things were at that in 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 ancestral populations, and one of these best guesses is that dispersal in ancestral human populations was female biased. So what that means is basically that when a female reached reproductive age, she would tend to leave her natal family group and would move closer to or move in with um, her opposite sex partner's family group. So essentially, although marriage might not have been um, necessarily a social construct at that time, women left and to live with the husband's family and that's where they raised their offspring. So if we take that assumption as being um, valid for now, um, then we can start to think about what will be going on when the two classes of reproductively interested females try to breed at the same time in those households. So if you think you've got now the mothers-in-law 
who are the sort of matriarchs of the family, they might want to breed and have their own children. And you also have these new incomers, the daughters-in-law, who are also um, potentially going to breed and have their own children. Now, we know that humans evolved in pretty difficult environments where food was hard to come by. It was stochastic. Um, we, we relied on each other very much to sort of get by in, in, in from what we know about ancestral human environments, we, the inference is that cooperation was very important to survive. And another inference is that if multiple females in the same um, locality or the same household are co-breeding, then it potentially means that all the offspring will suffer because there's just not enough resource to go around to support multiple offspring being raised at the same time. Now, this basically raises a sort of evolutionary conflict between uh, the two categories of female that might, in theory, want to breed at the same time. So on the one hand, you've got these, the daughters-in-law, and then you've got their mothers-in-law, and they might both want to breed, but doing so means that all the children will suffer, basically. Now, based on theoretical models, what now seems to be plausible is that in this conflict, the mother-in-law has a greater incentive to yield and to surrender to the daughter-in-law. And the reason for that is that a mother-in-law has a vested genetic interest in the offspring that are produced by the daughter-in-law. And so she's slightly disincentivized to breed herself if doing so will harm her grandchildren, as long as she definitely is, you know, they definitely are her grandchildren. Uh, on the other hand, the daughter-in-law doesn't have that same um, interest in any offspring produced by the mother-in-law. They're not her genetic relatives. And from an evolutionary perspective, there really is not very much incentive for a daughter-in-law to reduce her efforts in breeding in order to not harm the offspring that might be produced by a mother-in-law. And so what can happen when you have this what's called a relatedness asymmetry is that over evolutionary time, and I must emphasize this, without any conscious decision-making on the part of either female, um, selection can favor the, um, the evolution of menopause, whereby the older individual basically surrenders in this evolutionary conflict and says, okay, I'm gonna just not compete with you at all, my, I'll, I will switch off reproduction and I won't, my children will not compete with yours. Um, and once that switch point has happened, the older female can then continue to reap fitness benefits through the, through the uh, increased uh, success of genetic variants that she has and that are also found in her grandchildren by helping to raise her grandchildren. And so what we see is this kind of double, um, this double effect happening whereby older females undergo a major physiological transition and then they also essentially become helpers and they reap fitness benefits by helping to raise their grandchildren. As you're describing that, it makes me think, does each organism tend to support other organisms in relation to their 50% uh, genetically similar, 25% genetically similar, 12.5%. And that percentage affects how much they would base their decisions off of them, not maybe consciously, but over time, it has led to that. Um, I think that's probably a tad simplistic, but so there's, there's a bunch of evidence that shows that relatedness is hugely important in explaining the evolution of helping behavior and the individuals that are more related to one another are quite often more likely to help one another but there are some there are some also some scenarios where um where where individuals might not be selected to help each other even if they are related um, and that can happen, for example, under extreme resource scarcity, where really interactions become zero sum and where um, 
where there, there's there's little to be gained in fitness terms, even if you are related to an individual by helping them. So I think in a sort of broad sense, yes, I, I agree. But I think on the it's very much one of those things which is context specific and where that is not it's not easy just to sort of give a carte blanche yes to an to a question like that. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. One slight tangent off of that is related to on the topic of selfishness. I had seen one research paper where it was describing how children or younger individuals were more likely to follow or go with a selfish norm, whereas older individuals were more likely to agree with or support a generous norm. Have you noticed any age-related selfishness versus generosity in uh, some of the organisms you examined or in people if you have looked at that in relation so the paper you mentioned is actually a study that um i was a collaborator on but was mainly led by um a co-author and a collaborator of mine called katie mcauliffe and it's actually a really cool study so we were interested in the development of fairness norms in children and how much we could um, move those around by by telling children, either telling them what to do or by telling them what other people do. And so to do it, we gave children stickers, which is a valuable resource for these <laughs> children. Um, and yeah, they then we so we gave them like five stickers and we told them in one in one condition, we said, um, you should give four of those stickers away to another kid. Or we told them most people give four of those stickers away. So we gave we were told them a sort of generous sharing norm where the norm was give four out of five of these precious stickers to somebody else. Uh, And then for another set of kids, we gave them a different norm. We said, um, here are your stickers. You should give one of those away to another kid or you should give or most people only give one away to the other kid. So we have this kind of dissociation between you should do this. This is most people do this. And also whether we're kind of telling them just give away one out of five or we're telling them give away most of what we gave you, give away four out of five. Um, And what we were interested in is whether children follow the norms, whether whether their age affects, whether they follow them and whether they reacted differently to this kind of being told what to do, which is quite a normal thing for most children are told what to do quite a lot in their childhood versus being told how other people behave which we thought potentially might be that sort of sensitivity to what other people are doing we thought might emerge a bit in older children um, rather than younger ones so the main thing we found is that there was no real difference between being told what to do versus being told uh, everyone does this so kids didn't seem to respond differently to that the kind of how we told them what to do um, but they did respond quite differently to the different um, norms that we actually gave them and so what we found with the kids that we told um, just give one away you've got five just give one to another kid what we found is that young children were like sweet I'll do that they were kind of they didn't mind they felt like we told them to do it it was fine they would just give one away mm-hmm. the older kids were, were a bit more resistant to our directive and tended to even though we'd said to them just give one they tended to try to be fair and to give half of what they had to another kid mm-hmm. when it came to the generosity one where we said Give away, give away four out of five or eight out of 10 of these stickers that we've given to you. What we found there is that young kids didn't want to do that. They basically didn't, they found it difficult to give away more of the more of the resource. But also the older kids didn't really do it either. And and although the older kids did give away more than the younger kids, they tended to peak at this norm of equality so basically giving away half of what they had and they were pretty reluctant to give away not many kids gave away more than half of what they had so it gives us and Katie has done really cool work in this space this is just one study but essentially that it seems like for children 
their sensitivity to norms is something which emerges in middle childhood. And that's when you start to see children diverging in terms of what they think is the right thing to do in a social dilemma, what their understanding of what fair means, and all these things that actually vary quite a bit around the world, that divergence starts to emerge in childhood um, when kids are about seven to eight years old. And that's when children start really internalizing the norms of the society that they live in. So yeah, there's the, I would recommend to look at Katie's papers. Makes sense. I like to, when I see a paper, I kind of stretch. Is it a stretch to then think that like older individuals or those who have more understanding would be more likely to be more giving or is that like beyond that kind of research? Um, I don't know. We haven't looked at it with older individuals, but I don't know whether we would still, whether we would find the older individuals would comply with the giveaway most of what you have. I mean, uh, I think even in, you know, when you look at like how much tax are people willing to pay, I think it would be kind of a hard sell to tell people, okay, you have to pay like 80% of your salary in tax. I think a lot of people will really feel like aggrieved about that. And so um, I think it's pretty hard to get people to give away the majority of what they have. You know, billionaires, you know, who, who signed the giving pledge accepted, but I think they're really just in a different league of people. I mean, if you have $10 billion and you say, okay, I'll give away most of it, you still might be really, really rich at the end of it. So it's kind of all relative, right? right. Now, as far as children, if we go much younger, children will be a fetus. What is the dynamic between a mother and their fetus and any battle that occurs between them, which we might not think of? Yeah, so this is actually kind of interesting for, especially if you if you know someone who's been pregnant or if you've been pregnant yourself. I mean, lots of the, um, we tend to think of pregnancy as being like this really um, special time of bonding between a mother and the unborn child. And, you know, it's a real intimate time where the, where the baby is, is grown and protected by the mother. And there's always this sense of which, in which that you know there's this special bond developing uh, and I, I don't dispute that but I think that also what we know about what goes on during pregnancy also reveals that quite a lot of what is happening internally is basically a battleground between the mother and the unborn fetus and the conflict between the mother and the fetus arises because, because the fetus has genes from the mother, of course, but it also has genes from the father. And the genes, the paternal, the paternally derived genes and the maternally derived genes in the fetus um, kind of disagree in a way over what the optimal amount of resource that comes from the mother ought to be. And so uh, in a very sort of general sense, you can say that on average, the paternal genes prefer that the mother gives slightly more resource to the fetus than the, than the mother would really like to give. So the maternal genes in, the inside the fetus, the maternally derived genes, they have shares, if you like, in the future fitness of, of, of the mother because they might also find themselves in any subsequent offspring that are raised, that are born to that female. And the paternal genes, just by virtue of the fact that um, not all mating is lifetime monogamy, the, the paternal genes have less of a vested interest in the future offspring that are produced by the mother. And so that can spark this kind of genomic conflict, conflict that occurs inside a genome inside the genome of the fetus and which also plays out and affects the dynamics that occur between the fetus and the mother that harbors it. Um, one of the ways this can play out is that paternally, paternally derived genes can um, act to in, 
do things that increase resource delivery to the fetus. So that includes things like increasing maternal blood pressure, um, increasing the glucose concentration in the maternal blood. So both of those things help to speed resource delivery to the unborn fetus. Um, and both of those things are, are commonly um, the, the things which go wrong in when, when women get diseases associated with pregnancy, like for example, preeclampsia and gestational diabetes. And so this isn't just kind of a theoretical musing on how conflict could in principle occur inside this inside the fetus. This has real, you know, serious implications for the health of the fetus and the health of the mother. And so it's, it's sort of very interesting to see how these sort of conflicts can pervade even the most intimate of relationships that, that we have between a mother and the unborn child and between, you know, a, a, a female, a pregnant female and her, and her partner, for example. Mm -hmm. I like thinking about these internal, not battles, but they happen. It reminded me of how when you're early in growth, your immune system builds from a battle between the responses that are able to, oh, that are eaten, eaten by your own cells versus the ones that are too weak, leaving a certain range of, I'm not wording it the best, but a certain range of immune response. It, it, this like battle weeds out the outsides and keeps in the middle of immune strength. And the same way here, it's like a competition between the paternal genes having less uh, investment and the maternal genes here, there's like this constant ratio that's maintained and then shows itself through external conditions such as described. It's something else to think about in the background. Now, one thing I like to check is in your research, who are a couple of people who have guided you or who your material has followed from that are relevant to you? Um, I, often I find that I, the papers that really pull me in and that I find I learn a lot from and that influence my thinking are papers that are done by um, evolutionary anthropologists who tend to work in the field, um, looking at data, looking at behaviors that are happening in the real world, um, but not in sort of large scale industrialized societies, but instead in lots of very diverse, but uh, non-Western small scale societies. So um, a few people whose work I really admire would be um, Luke Glowacki, who's worked on the Neanderthal in, in Ethiopia, who's looked at, who's explored quite a bit on inter-tribe um, violence and homicide uh, and the psychological antecedents of that. I really uh, love the work being done by Eleanor Power, who's at LSE. Sorry, I should have said Luke Glowacki's at UPenn now. Ellie Power's at LSE. She works on um, status signaling, basically, in small-scale rural Indian societies. And her work is just a really nice example of how concern for reputation um, can pervade these, um, can pervade social networks and can result in a real diversity of strategies to managing and burnishing reputation. So I, I love, the, I love her work. And then someone perhaps a bit more maybe um, senior in the field whose work I really like as well is Polly Wiesner, who's worked on, whose primary interest I think is on punishment and norm enforcement in small scale societies um, and whose work on re restorative justice has really helped to shape my thinking on punishment um, and the evolution of punishment. Hmm. Do any of those individuals or other individuals have like one or two specific research papers that are the base research papers that you use on a regular basis? It's hard to answer that question. Like I tend to, I wouldn't say there's any one paper in particular. Um, I think for a good overview of Ellie's work, 
um, there's a paper called, oh, I can't remember it now, The Significance of Subtle Social Signals, I think that's called, and that's more of a kind of review paper, but it's very interesting perspective on reputation, uh, concern for reputation, and instead of the way that a lot of us often tend to think about people doing reputation-based cooperation, we tend to think of individuals doing grandiose, um, ostents, uh, sort of um, ostentatious deeds of generosity or uh, things that are really sort of easily observable and very in your face. And Ellie, what Ellie's work emphasizes is the importance of much less sort of grandiose or um, performative acts of pro-social behavior that nevertheless are really, really important in maintaining a good reputation in the society that you live in. And I think that that point has been a little bit overlooked in the kind of the general theory on reputation-based cooperation is that often, like often one way to really often one strategy that individuals use to maintain a good reputation is not investing in these high cost, really showy displays, but instead investing in regular, small cost, not very showy acts of help that might indicate something about your underlying character. And maybe you're even more reliable as a, as a signal in some ways than the large, than the really showy acts that we sort of tended to focus on. A bit of subtlety there the last item i would like to check is if you had a megaphone to all the people on the planet what is the message you might want to tell them about uh, cooperation or recurrent research or the topic of the book <laughs> if i had a megaphone um i'd say buy my book um it's <laughs> in the third and i think i would just say cooperation is basically the key to understanding life as we know it on earth and I think that that is you know it's like a superpower if you can understand you know if you can get a handle on cooperation and the co and the vast field of cooperation research you're in such a better position to understand who we are how we got here and where we might end up I like this message and I agree understanding that is a very valuable tool professor Nicola Rehani I would like to thank you for having joined on this episode of the show.